Alright, so ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Today we're here to talk about lessons that we've learned from Trust Me, I'm Lying. It's a book by Ryan Holiday that came out probably two or three years ago uh, about kind of getting PR and media manipulation. And I guess we both kind of heard of it, but we never read it. Uh, and finally, we got to it last week and kind of around the same time by coincidence. So today we're going to talk about kind of what we learned, what the book is about and kind of some things um, that you can take away from it too. So Travis, uh, what's going on? Uh, I guess the big thing is just kind of coincidentally as well, I decided I really start want to start hitting the public relations trail, trying to get on dance blogs and in local media and all that kind of fun stuff. So I'm kind of excited that we're talking about this book because it's such perfect timing. Yeah, I want to touch upon this book too because on, I guess, the Kickstarter launch where the press stuff didn't really work out, I wanted to figure out you know, what was it that I missed, I guess, in the process and kind of how the food chain works. So this book kind of really shed some light on that uh, and kind of explains why things can go from like a local blog all the way to like CNN, Drudge Report, Huffington Post uh, in some ways. And, and then after I read this book, I looked at a couple examples that I know from the past. I'm like, okay, now I can see how it goes from like SF Gate, something in San Francisco up to like the local, you know, San Jose Mercury to like, you know, Huffington Post and then to like CNN. Like it makes a lot of sense now uh, once you explain it in the book. So today that's what we're going to talk about. And so the first part, I guess we'll just jump into this, um, started out kind of with the history of journalism in a sense, uh, because uh, Ryan was talking about, you know, you need to explain where it comes from to understand where it is today. So I guess the biggest thing he was talking about was the 1920s, when newspapers first came out, uh, there were actually tools for politicians to explain uh, their views or what's going on to like audience, right? Like their party followers, things like that. And then it transitioned into this thing called yellow journalism, where people were kind of hyping hypey headlines, uh, link bait type of stuff because they just wanted to get more traffic uh, to get people to pay for the newspaper because they were being sold for like, I don't know, every cents, it was like 10 cents a copy or something like that. And basically the more they could sell, uh, the more money they would make. And they would have these headlines uh, like war declared or and then things like that just to get people to buy. What I think of, yeah, when I think of that, I, I always think of that little kid on the street like extra, extra, war's declared. You know, that that's what I really was thinking about while he was talking about this. Yeah, and that's really what it was like, uh, apparently. I mean, I wasn't alive back then, obviously, but it seems like that was the case, how it kind of got started. And then eventually the noise got too much. And then I think the New York Times was the first one to do subscription journalism, where it was like, hey, pay us, you know, five bucks, uh, you know, a week and we'll deliver a newspaper to your house every day. And what that was able to do was it, it was able to cut out the noise where they focused on the editorial quality of what was on the newspaper. Because you really only had like, what, 10... 20 pages starting out, eventually 50, 60 pages. So what they put on the newspaper then became uh, a big filter because, you know, if you're paying X amount a month, you expect X amount of quality in the journalism too. And what happened was that in the internet in, you know, the past 10 years basically removed that because now, you know, anyone can have a WordPress blog, anyone can just start writing stuff. And it's kind of reverted back to the yellow journalism view where everyone is just wants to get page views, they get hits because a lot of these sites like, you know, Huffington Post, Forbes, AOL, TechCrunch, Mashable, Engadget, like basically all these quote blogs, uh, they make their money from ad revenue. So it'll be like, hey, we have, you know, 5 million hits a month uh, on a CPM of 1,000 people. Uh, here's what, you know, our ad rates are. And you'll notice this when you go like, you know, Cosmopolitan, Forbes, you always have these list posts where it's like, hey, 20 things uh, like, you know, Mark Cuban said, and each page is like a arrow you got to click next like they will never list it in a whole page they want to make you click next and you see like you have to load the page 10 times because they actually get more page views that way too and if you look at it, even when you sign up for alerts oh do you want to sign up 
do you want to how often do you want to get updates and oh can you confirm and then when you confirm you get taken to another page and basically these are all pages that they try to game to get more ad revenue too so a lot of the kind of stuff he talks about in this book uh, comes from this model where kind of all these blogs in the ecosystem are looking for ad revenue and they're looking for page views too. Yeah, now just going back to the subscription model versus the headline model, what I always think of is, you know, if you see a blog post that says something like, is your refrigerator killing you? You're like, oh, I'm gonna click on that. And then the answer is inevitably, no, it's not. And if, if that's a subscription model, you cancel your subscription because you're like, wow, this is such a BS story. But on the modern way the internet works, they get paid because you clicked and you read an article that ended up being just complete nonsense. Yeah. And he has some examples like, does sitting kill you? Or the cell phones cause cancer? And usually if you say them as a sentence, they're a lie. But when they're phrased as a question, there's like a link baity, click baity type of element built into that too. Yep. So that was kind of interesting. And I guess going on to that, um, you know, as they try to get page views, because um, everyone's trying to fight for page views, right? So what happens is um, he was saying a lot of the little local blogs, you know, everyone's looking for content to publish, but they're looking at what other people are publishing too. Because if someone has something that hits with a lot of page views, you got to jump on that too. Because if you don't, you're missing out on views that could go to your own site. So that's why a lot of stuff gets recycled really fast in the news cycle. So he was saying, you know, something like a local blog could say, hey, you know, this politician, you know, didn't tip uh, this hot dog vendor. And then suddenly like the local news picks it up. And then like, you know, the local regional city news picks it up. And then like, you know, something like a LA Times picks it up, Huffington Post, and then it's on CNN. And then like in a week, it's just like blows up. And then the next thing comes along too. Yeah. And it's actually what he was kind of saying too, is that's probably the, the route you should follow is you know, if you go to the local bloggers first, they'll blog about anything. They don't really care. And then from there, you can go to the Santa Clarita news, in my case, like the local news and just be like, hey, uh, we were featured in this local blog. You know, we're pretty legit. Do you want to feature us? And then you go just work your way up the ladder, which I think is one of the big key takeaways from the book. Yeah. So we were talking about the kind of Travis's situation before the call, like, hey, you know, if he wants to feature his dance uh, store, you know, on kind of the press cycle, you know, what's the angle uh, for his business? And we were talking about, well, is it 200 colors on a store? We're kind of like a mom and son story where, you know, they're living in LA, you know, bringing manufacturing back to the US and, you know, hiring local people and things like that. Very like a patriotic angle. And we're thinking that's probably the way to go, right? You go to like your local Santa Clarita News, you know, just pitch a local reporter. I'm sure he's easy to find. He needs content to write about, right? And this is kind of a cool story where you have, a, you know, you've been at the business for a while, and it's something the community can kind of endorse too and things like that. Yeah, you know, this is actually something we've been wanting to do for a while, but I wanted to wait till we were all, um, for lack of a better word, legit. Like until we had our our location, our production facility and made sure that everything was on the books. Not that it ever wasn't, but, you know, want to make sure everything was good before we have a news crew coming through like, hey, wait a minute. You know, I don't know. I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So let's move on to number two. So part two of the book, uh, he kind of explains, all right, since you know the ecosystem is like this, how do you actually manipulate it into getting featured on these things in there? So uh, we still have to try this ourselves, but this is just completely takeaways from the book, uh, kind of some examples we've seen too. So I guess first thing is um, online media actually has an unlimited amount of space, which is kind of true because anyone can publish a blog post. And he was saying one example where there was some site that paid their bloggers, I think like four or $5 a post, and they had to post like six times a day or four times a day, 
and it was just a huge churn boiler room of content. Um, and I was like, wow, that's kind of like slave work, actually. Well, yeah, and the, the reason, too, is with the old style of media, like if you have a magazine, you only have 50 pages. You can only do, let's say, five articles, whatever. But in blogs, you literally can do infinite articles and you get paid per page view. So it's why, why wouldn't you do an extra article? So if there's so much noise out there, you got to create your own buzz, essentially. And this is, I think, the coolest part of the book where he was saying, um, usually when you think about press, you're like, hey, I'm going to email this journalist. I'm going to talk to him on Twitter and then, you know, tweet at him and then become friends and then take it from there. Right. And so this like this part I struck me like a nail. I was like, oh, I should have done this. So he was saying you make three or four fake email accounts, you know, whatever like John Anderson, you know, Terry Smith, they just like generic names. And then you would send uh, tips on like most blogs to like editors and you would send the same tip or different angles of it from like, so it would seem like, you know, four random people found this story and you should write about it and then kind of generate your own buzz. Yeah, I love this idea. So it's like you create this fake thing, this fake email and you send it to them. And one of the things he said too is that writers don't get a lot of fan mail, fan tips. So when they do, it's kind of like, hmm, what is this about? This is kind of interesting. Yeah. And when you get it from like four, quote, different people, it looks more uh, legit. So you can have like one guy, three girls or whatever from different looking names. And then you say, hey, I like your article. By the way, have you seen this? And then someone's hey, I just stumbled upon this. Check this out. Like, and one of the ideas I had was don't just send all positive stuff. So if I were to do the, the B dance where I'm not going to send um, someone an email saying, oh, my God, have you seen this site? It's so amazing. You know, they have so many colors and it's all made in the USA. Instead, what I'd like to do is something like, hey, have you seen this site? I really like the fact that all their dance clothing is made in the USA and they have 200 colors, but they're kind of expensive. Do you know of any cheaper alternatives? That doesn't sound like something that... Um, a brand would send to try to get some free publicity, but it still, yeah, it makes the writer aware it's like of it. a skeptical angle too. I, I, I get those emails and I was like, Hey, have you heard of this course from this guy? Like, what do you think about it? I'm like, Oh, here's what I think. But I don't think it's like a, it's not like from the course guy trying to create buzz, but it's interesting how I can see, like if I got four of those, I'd be like, hmm, I'll look into this. And then like, it kind of makes me curious too. Yeah. And then I was thinking I could even reach out personally as the brand, you know, a couple of weeks later and they're like, hey, I've heard a lot about you. Like you're becoming pretty popular right now and they're probably more likely to want to feature our brand. All right. So uh, next thing he talked about in the book was, uh, you know, if you're going to break through the noise, usually um, there are different emotions you want to go for. So either controversy, anger or kind of good feelings. And there, he was, had a good example of um, the picture, city of Detroit where how the city kind of has emptied out since you know car manufacturing is kind of dead in the US. And he was saying how there were photos of just the empty city and the city with actually people where like you get homeless people, uh, dogs, cats, stray cats, whatever. And he was saying um, the ones with just the city became so viral because there was kind of this fantasy built into that. Like, oh, it's an empty, dead city. There's kind of like this mysticism built into that. Whereas when you see like a homeless dog, like a pack of dogs that are like, you know, have skin disease, they're dying. Like, it makes you sad, right? So you don't want to share that. So he was saying basically, you know, stuff that makes people angry, uh, you know, when you attack their beliefs, behaviors, or belongings, they call it the three Bs. Uh, it gets people really riled up, right? I mean, you think about like politics, uh, religion, like, you know, like, you know, gay marriage, whatever topics you see on the internet. You know, some people on Facebook get really worked up about this stuff. I'm like, dude, you guys are stupid. But in the end, it's like identity play for them because they're getting attacked. Like, oh, I believe this thing and you think it's wrong. So you're attacking me. So I'm going to come in and defend myself. And the good thing is that uh, when a brand does this, if they does it correctly, 
the people who are on the third party who don't even care about it get their eyeballs on this discussion. So everyone's being kind of manipulated in the, this kind of brand awareness through trolling um, that gets you PR. Yeah, and it doesn't only have to be anger. So in another, I've seen him talk before and he talks about how if you have a story that will make people a little bit angry, that's not as good as something that will make people really laugh. So it's like the extremes of emotion. And if you think about like if you've ever seen a picture online and you find it just hilarious, you want to share it. But if you find a picture that makes you just a little angry, you're probably not going to share it. Well, it's like, you remember know? that Psy, that South Korean song, the Gangnam Style song? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to play a little bit of this wildest. Uh, yeah, see, you guys hear that? Yeah, exactly. So this song went crazy viral in like like one month, right? Remember it got like a billion views, I think in like two weeks or something like that. And I mean, it's not like, it's not like an angry thing, but it's kind of like a, what the fuck is this guy doing type of thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's that extreme though. So I, that's something I was thinking a lot of. How could I uh, have those extreme emotions with my brand? And the truth is I wouldn't want to anger people because it's the people that I serve. My market is very uh, emotional. They're very, they don't want to be associated with a negative brand, but I could do something that's really hilarious. Like I thought about maybe putting dogs wearing our clothing, though I don't think I'm actually going to do that because it might devalue the brand, but things that are just kind of funny. You yeah. Know? So, I mean, there's also the really moving angle. Like there was a, a article that was going around a couple years ago where I think this like soldier died in Afghanistan and they were at like his uh, funeral and then the dog like wouldn't leave his coffin or something. And like that got like shared virally and like something like that, like is really kind of cool too. But I mean, th I think that's just like really hard to engineer though. Cause like if you engineer it and you're not genuine, I think people can smell that like right away, like if it's too pitchy in some ways, like, you know, like it's gotta be really, really well crafted if you're going that angle. Yeah, I wonder if you could do like film some kind of charity thing, like you walking around, like maybe my thing, like going around to like underprivileged schools and being like, hey, I know you guys can't afford dance costumes this year, but I wanted to give this to you and like whatever, something of that nature. That would be like a positive way to do it. Yeah, and then the story would then be, hey, here's a video of the girls performing and like all their moms are crying and like, well, yeah. and like, that oh, that's, go, that's a good right? idea. Yeah. yeah. But then if you say like, hey, brought to you by B Dancer, then it's like, hey, hey, you guys are manipulating our emotions. And I don't know. Like I think a, you could do it subtly. I mean, I've seen you can do videos. It subtly. You yeah. Can, yeah. Definitely seen stuff like that before. The next thing we were talking about was uh, understanding what bloggers go for. So we know that publishers go for the page view economics. Uh, they want advertisers to give them, uh, you know, certain dollars for a certain CPM. And usually these ad buyers are buying, you know, five figure, six figure ad buys on like Forbes, Huffington Post, whatever, ad networks, things like that. So, um, but to get on there, you need the blogger to write about you, right? So he was talking about um, the nature of bloggers and how basically they're kind of poor writers because if you're writing an article for like, you know, $20 and you only get paid like $10 per 10,000 page views, like you're never gonna make any money. And I think there was an article where he said, he's really critical of Business Insider, where he's saying, hey, a writer needs to pay for their own overhead, contribute to like the office, rent, uh, healthcare, whatever. And he did the calculations and like a writer would need to get like 2 million page views a month just to even make that benchmark. And basically it's impossible, right? So um, he's talking about, all right, so how can you manipulate this model if you know bloggers are poor and uh, publications need a lot of content? Well, he was saying, well, you just give them a lot of free stuff and invest in them uh, kind of early on. Yeah, and I think it could even be as simple as just, you know, your product for free and trying that out, at least at the smaller level. I mean, if you're trying to get on TechCrunch, I don't know, maybe if you give them a free laptop, but I don't know if uh, some dance pants are really going to do it for them. Yeah, exactly. So we're talking about uh, when he was at American Apparel, he would just 
have two people on his staff, full-time staff, looking for fashion bloggers and just send them stuff every month. And, and they would just keep writing about it too. No, I think normally you want to, there's like, you know, in journalism, you have to disclose that this is free, you know, or whatever. But like, I think in the blogging space, it's very blurred in some ways. And, you know, you can take advantage of that. So this goes back to what I was talking about earlier in a couple episodes where like, when you're doing a manufacturing order, you get a quote for a thousand, but you do a trial order of like hundred and then you can use that 100 to kind of get press to send it to free to like bloggers or something like that. And then when you're ready to launch, then put the rest of the order in, which is kind of like if you want to work that out from like a product side, that's probably yeah, a good way to that go. That sounds like a, a good way to go. Yeah. And so moving on about bloggers, um, you know, besides being poor, a lot of them want to get bigger editorial jobs eventually. Mm-hmm. So say they'll have their own little, you know, Travis's tech blog. And then, you know, CNET will hire Travis once you have, you know, 200,000 followers, right? And once you're at CNET, you can go like, hey, I'm going to go work at, you know, AOL or whatever, New York Times. And I don't know, I don't know the whole space, but basically they want to level up into becoming an editor. And so he was saying, if you can invest in them early enough, when there's still nobody's giving them free stuff, you know, knowing them really well, you can use the payoff down the line when you need like a feature at a bigger location. But this is like a real long ball play. We're talking like, you know, two, three years, five years uh, type of thing too. All right, so next, uh, finding blogs to target. Um, Why don't you talk about this one? Sure, so I I think that's um, really important in most of our cases because it's, for a lot of us, I think it'd be hard to get the LA Times to feature us. And I don't know how beneficial it would be. Like in my own case, it'd be cool to get the LA Times to feature my site, but it'd be much cooler to get like a local, not a local blog, but a blog that's specifically about dance. Because I'll take 10,000 visitors a month that are highly targeted over a million that are just kind of like, you know, mismashed around. So I think finding the proper blogs is really crucial. And I mean, there's a lot of ways to do that. You can go on Google and just search for the blogs. And a lot of different sites will have, depending on your topic, you can find lists. Like I ended up finding best dance blogs list. And then I found top 20 dance blogs of 2013. And so there's all these different opportunities to find those blogs, but then uh, make sure you vet them properly because at first look, some of the blogs I looked at looked like they were really quality blogs. And then I went over to their Twitter and their Facebook and saw that they only have like, you know, a hundred likes on Facebook and 50 Twitter followers. And it's like, okay, maybe I don't give some free items to this person. Well, on the counter side, if they have like 300,000 fans and like zero likes on every post, then you know it's something's fishy there too. Yeah. And that's the other thing I looked at was, so I looked at how recently they post and how often they post and the comments. Do they have any comments? And if it's like, if they repeatedly have no comments and no comments, there's a good chance that it's not that popular of a blog. It doesn't need to just be blogs. Like one of the things I got from him is forms are really great. And, you know, Reddit, Fark, Metafilter, College Humor, 4chan, The Chive, and all kinds of different like specialized forms. That might even be better than some blogs. If you get a form with, you know, a thousand people, you can, it's meant to have conversations and you're allowed to post. You don't even need to talk to an editor. So uh, one of the big things you're talking about is, you know, finding the angle for your story. And uh, I guess if you just be like, hey, I'm making this thing and here it is, like, it's kind of boring. So you're saying, you know, what's controversial? about what you're doing and uh, try to find that angle there. So a little kind of jab, not really at him, but uh, I guess a little angle that he was talking about is that like he was working for Tucker Max, who I don't know if you know who he is. He kind of wrote, he was like this party dude in Lost Duke Law School and he wrote about his, you know, kind of 
journeys you know dating a bunch of girls and then like getting drunk and like not remembering who they are and like, all this drama about his kind of bachelor life and so he ended up writing a book doing a movie and so kind of like as a pr guy i guess he's kind of already easy to be controversial you just kind of go after like the feminist guys and just you know make them angry and then you got the pr done for you whereas like, i think something like maybe like like what you were saying like if you're doing dance work, it's a little bit harder to do that or at least the angle is not as obvious yeah, that's when I think you really have to ask yourself, well, what's newsworthy about what you're doing? And 99% of the time, I feel like the first thought you have is not the real thing. Like I saw a video of him talking for Creative Live and at a panel of five people and he asked everyone like, what's newsworthy about what you're doing? And they all had the worst answers. It's the one guy was doing this meal delivery thing and he's like, well, we deliver meals in the San Diego area. And it's like, okay, why do I care? So you have to really think like, why would someone want to write about this what's newsworthy about what you are doing you remember that paris hilton carl's jr thing yeah but see i think though even with that kind of stuff carl's jr is in american apparel and all these they want to be controversial like with their ads i wouldn't i couldn't think of any kind of ad that i'd want to do that wouldn't have too much negative backlash you know what i mean because my brand is like really fragile but you really like super bowl ads some of them are controversial, but it's not like they're talking about the brand. They're talking about the ad becomes a story. Yeah, but I mean, I think newsworthy can be, like you were saying before, feel good as well. So like our my whole business thing could be like uh, mom, son, duo, uh, bring manufacturing back to the USA through social media. And I'm like, that's something that I could see in a newspaper. It's newsworthy. It's interesting. I mean, it's not, it's not going to go viral like... Paris Hilton eating a hamburger while doing a sex tape or something, but it's still... The hard part is finding either the feel-good, you know, or controversial parts. So, you know, I don't know what your business is, listener, but, um, you know, assuming you can find that, then you use that to kind of pitch um, people too. So what does he talk about here in the book? So another part he's talking about is when you're pitching, you need to remember that your story needs a beginning, a middle, and an end. And what that means is like, in the beginning, you kind of talk about how the world was. So if I'll do my story through this. So how the world was is kind of like, you know, oh, all the manufacturing was being outsourced to China and, you know, Americans are losing their job. Then the middle, you talk about what you're doing. Well, what we're actually doing is trying to bring that manufacturing back to the U.S. by offering more colors. We're able to hire U.S. workers, which our counter companies can't uh, try to compete with us in. And then the end part of your story should be the utopia you're creating. And you're like, our goal is to help, you know, create a hundred jobs in the next few years. Or our goal is to kind of set the trend and make U.S. manufacturing uh, a powerhouse that it used to be. And then by creating that full loop, that's what a story is. Like when you hear a story online, like think of Shakespeare. It's not just like, hey, this is what we're doing. That'd be the equivalent of Shakespeare just having like a middle part of their play. It'd be kind of boring. It's like if Romeo and Juliet just elope. It's just like, hey, let's just go to Vegas and get married. Right? Like, what's the story there? Right? Yeah, there w- there'd be no tension at the beginning, and there'd be no uh, ending that's like interesting. So, but most people, once again, going back to that creative live thing where he was interviewing these people and asking them about their story, no one did that. It's not like a natural human thing to do unless you're really good at telling stories, but it hooks people in. Another thing, like once you're talking with journalists is you can, first off, you should try to only pick journalists that write similar things 
that you would like to have them write about your store. For instance, I wouldn't call up someone at TechCrunch and be like, hey, I got this really cool story for you. But maybe I'd talk to like a business writer for, you know, Fox News or something like that. And so you want to tell the journalist, hey, I saw that you wrote about this. I think you might like this story that we have. And it shows, it does a couple things. One, it shows that you actually know who this writer is. And two, it, it kind of, in their own mind, makes them realize, hey, I have written about similar stuff before. Yeah, I could probably do a story about this as well. Yeah, and the other hack he was saying was when you have these, you know, four or five fake email addresses from like a Gmail, Hotmail, just make up these random people. And then you email them to the same journalist. Like, hey, did you hear about this? Or, you know, what do you think about this? I just came across this. And kind of you generate your own buzz in some ways, which is kind of manipulative. But hey, I think I think that's fine. No, yeah. I mean, it's the game, right? Exactly. And then so, you know, once you find someone that's done a story for you, you can always go back because I think journalists are always looking for new stories to write about, right? And whereas if they have a trusted source already, you know, it's very easy for them to say yes because it makes their job easier too. And one thing that's interesting, he was talking about um, press releases. I guess, you know, if you don't come from that world, it was kind of obscure for me too. He was saying how so many people just copy it inside a press release because, you know, people are lazy, they need page views. They just say, oh, as seen on, as, you know, announced from the press release and they just do it word by word copy and they just try to like get page views and, and he was saying a lot of the times, if you can package a story in a page view, in the press release, uh, usually that's you know can get you some kind of ripples in the water and some traction from there too. But I've always thought that press releases are like hit or miss. But maybe it's just the way the story is framed is just bad. Yeah. No as far as the once you find someone that is receptive and going back and back and back to them again, uh, there's actually a lot of tips in, in the next section that I have for that. But a, a couple quick tips before we move on is that he said is if you add video to your email, sometimes that works better. So, you know, you don't just send like an email saying, Hey, here's our story in words, put a video there too. And they get to see you, which is pretty cool. He also talks about asking questions in the subject line, such as like, uh, you know, I don't know, do you, do you like manufacturing in the U S or I don't know, whatever weird questions he split tested it a bunch and said that when there's questions in the subject line, people are more likely to open the emails, basically. I mean, the, the last two things, I guess, are give different, make sure you give different pitches to different people. Don't, don't pitch all the different blogs, uh, all the different writers in the same way. And if your pitch is too general and the writer can write about it at any time, he might as well write about it never. So he talks about in the book, I believe, like setting deadlines, saying like, hey, we're going to release this next week. So if you want the exclusive, you know, you better hurry up and write about it. Like, don't say it like that, but make it very clear that, oh, we're going to release this new product tomorrow. I'm going to give you first access to it or something like that. That makes there be a little bit of a deadline. Yeah. All right. So I guess the next thing is like, all right, say you do get featured. How do you build momentum out this? So going back to the three or four fake emails, well, you leave four or five fake comments in, uh, in the articles because if an article has zero comments, so every writer that makes a blog post, even myself, whatever, like we, we get alerts when people post a comment in the blog. So these writers are always looking for that. And when they can see some minor engagement, you know, it'll stay on top of their radar. Like, oh, hey, this is generating uh, kind of attention, which translates to page views. So the publisher likes it and they can sell more ad revenue too. So he was saying um, sometimes he would leave fake comments and maybe kind of troll himself or... Uh, send both positive and negative comments to kind of get this ball rolling. Yeah, so like he, I think it was the Tucker Max one where he had a like a negative comment like, oh my God, this guy is such a misogynist, like he's such an awful person. Then he put his own positive comment saying, no, he's great, you know, whatever. 
And then what happens is it snowballed where other people wanted to argue with one of the two comments. So he like seeded it, but then it just kind of snowballs into this whole conversation. Yeah, like the guy who says Tucker Max is great. He's like, no, how can you think that? Did you not see his blog post about how he did this to that girl, got her drunk, blah, blah, blah. Like who guy would do that? And he's like, he's like, well, the girl, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, who knows? You know, she was probably just manipulating him. And then like, like people just go back and forth and they started slinging one. And the interesting thing was that one of the things he did was he bought billboards. I remember in like Hollywood, and then he would like spray paint his own billboards, and then take a picture, and then send it to a journalist. And he'd go, hey, I just drove by, you know, Hollywood and Highlands. Did you see this? Like someone Tucker Max's movie is coming out. And what happened was that it became real because other people started doing it across the country. And he was saying there was like a blurred line where like you know things became real, things that were fake became real, and things that were real became fake, and like the truth just kind of gets blurred. Uh, in between the whole thing too yeah and going back to like going once you have a reporter that likes you like going back to them again and again if you can not only get a lot of comments on the blog but actually like promote this article via your own social media so you get more page views so this this writer wrote this post about your company and if you can get the traffic to that post he gets more views it's more successful and one of the things he was saying in the book is you can actually buy really cheap views and the way to do that is to go to stumble upon or outbrain and he said it's like a couple like a penny or two and you can get clicks to the article that's about you so if you have an article that has you know 25,000 views or whatever and a couple months later you go back to this person and say hey uh, we have another idea for an article they're more likely to be receptive than if your article just tanks you know yeah because the last thing they want to write is an article that gets no traffic so if you could even drive some quote traffic to that site uh, you know it's playing into the model like the page view economy and all that stuff too which you know in hindsight it's kind of like it's kind of sad that it's gotten to this state but it is what it is and you know i guess in the point of this whole book was him to just be like hey here's what it is what you do with it uh, is up to you yeah so you had some examples of, of some of this marketing you wanted to go into that yes so a couple examples here um one was uh, about Florida, I don't know if you remember this guy. This guy is a pastor in Florida. Uh, he was like, you know, going to burn the Islamic uh, Quran book. I guess he almost went on CNN to talk about it. It was a big national fervor in the U.S. while the war in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan was going on. And I think he actually ended up doing it. And what happened was that people were gonna do, they were gonna do a media blackout on it because they're like, hey, this is gonna, you know, people are gonna they're gonna be riots in the Middle East. People are gonna be angry. And what happened was um, some local blogger blogged about it because he was there and then the next guy blogged about it and local news blogged about it and like basically the blackout didn't work because um they wanted to get the page views right and suddenly it became national and i think there was some protest in afghanistan and like seven un people died so that's definitely a bummer story i'm not going to share this now because you just bummed me out bro yeah so i guess the, the other one that was kind of funny was by my friend john uh, he actually did this when he was in high school like in the 80s so he had this uh kind of like death metal band he was like you know 17 you know when you're young you don't really know what you're doing and so he was like man how can i get people to come to my show because back then there was no internet right and how do you get there's only the local newspaper so he wrote uh pretended he was like a christian mom to these Christ, local christian blogs like the local editor uh you know local local church like hey this band is playing at this school we need to not let them ruin our community our values whatever and then he would basically troll himself um as his band <laughs> And then it became this huge controversy and like the local reporter came to the show and what happened was to even take it up a notch, um, he wore like 
these fake intestines in his shirt or something like that and then I think he had like someone stab him and like punch him on stage and the cops ended up coming and then he ended up telling the cops hey this is just all orchestrated by me just to get publicity and he was like 18 year old kid that is awesome I, I wish I would have tried to be a rock musician now I probably could have done it exactly and it's like a good story it's controversy right like, oh my god like how many people get punched on stage by an audience guy and turns out it was just his good friend like just hey I'll pay you money to like punch me on stage and all that stuff yeah exactly and I guess another one was kind of a more personal one so I think two years ago there was a story um, where uh, one of my friends I grew up with he wrote this kind of satire piece about 10 things I hate about San Francisco and probably if you're in San Francisco you probably roll your eyes now because you've probably heard of that article and so in the article he was talking about oh how he you know doesn't like you know the city bus system how there's a lot of homeless people and like how you know there's a lot of pee on the floor or whatever and then ended up going kind of viral because it went from like the local SF gate to like the tech blogs uh, all the way to like Huffington Post and like all this stuff and it was interesting now that I look back at it I can see how the kind of article got traded up the, new, the news chain just because it was such a controversial piece that um, they wanted to jump on the page use, right? and what happened was that later on um, it got a second cycle because some people went to his Facebook page and they took his profile picture and they put it printed it on these papers like hey get the fuck out of San Francisco and they put it all around like Soma like where all the startups are because I guess there's a big kind of clash uh, in SF with all the rents and like the kind of you know kind of normal working class people and the tech people because the rents are so high so basically it was playing off that and they got like a second wind and then he ended up like hiding for like two months because it was too much press and like he didn't want that publicity and I think he was getting like death threats too. Or something. Did he do this on purpose or was this kind of like an accidental? I don't remember it was just like a thing with his girlfriend, I guess, kind of like a like a fun thing, and I guess taken out of context. I mean, I, I wasn't there when he wrote it, but I remember seeing the after. I was like, wow, this this fucking sucks. Yeah, so I guess uh, you know, see, it's controversial, right? Now we're talking about it, so I guess you know, if he gets round three about this, he can hate me too. So I guess it shows. I guess the point of these examples are like how the thing can be manipulated. Uh, in some ways too. Alrighty then, uh, you want to talk about the tools? Sure. Uh, just kind of wrapping it up. We talked a little bit about it before, but the press releases is something I've kind of forgotten about and thought, I, I thought it was kind of like old news, uh, but in his book, he kind of talks about like, no, nah, it's still pretty strong and uh, going. So I'm going to hopefully try this out towards the end of the summer, like right around August, like right when the season starts, I'm going to release some of those stories I was talking about uh, with my own company about like, different press releases and see how they do. He basically said he does a new press release every time anything of note happens because people will take them straight from the press release and just turn them into an article. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I remember uh, James Shremko was talking about doing this from Super Fast Business where every time he does a blog post, he does a press release. Which, which I, think, I think it's, I can see why because his philosophy was that it's like you throw rocks in a water and then the ripple effect will eventually hit something, right? But I almost feel like if you're just doing a blog post and you're doing a press release, like it's almost overkill. Aren't they expensive? Like to do it, to go to the right place, I think it's expensive. Yeah, I think PR Web is like a few hundred bucks a month, like 300, 400 for like the unlimited one. But like even then, there's probably like a per press release type of thing, so. Yeah, like I, I thought there was some kind of package, like five press releases. Yeah, like they're each like a hundred or something bucks. So it's don't waste too much time or don't waste too many yeah, articles. Yeah, or if you just have the money to dump into this, you know, like a big ad budget, you have like, you know, 20K a month to spend. And, I mean, you might as well just dump like 2K a month in this and see what happens. And, 
I'll be trying in the next few months and uh, hope for the best there. But another tip that might be a little bit less lower cost is Haro, which a lot of people have probably heard about. And I've tried before and I know, Terry, I think you have too. And I haven't had a lot of success. I did get featured in one blog, but I'm pretty sure they were basically doing the spotlight marketing tactic where they would feature me in their blog but their blog was like selling stuff to e-commerce stores. So I'm pretty sure that they were like just trying to get me into the system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like I've used Taro maybe a dozen times and I've gotten featured like twice about like e-commerce. And it wasn't even like, didn't even get any traffic for that too. So I don't know. I guess it depends how your angle goes through. I think in, yeah, I, th- I think in the future, uh, if I'm planning on potentially starting another e-commerce site and like I have a, a couple other things that I might want to like, I, you know, I have my other podcast. Maybe if I'm doing all three of those at once, it, it makes sense to look through the Haro email and say, hey, do any of these apply to any of the three to four things I have going on? But when I just have one thing going on, it's pretty rare that anything applies to bdancewear.com, you know? Yeah. When the book you was saying, you use those four fake emails and just pretend like you're an expert because they don't even fact check anyways because a lot of these times they just publish and they do an update later to like fix their facts because they're getting for the page views. You know, another thing, actually, I guess you could use those emails and email the same person all with like, oh yeah, have you heard about this company? Yeah, have you heard about this company? And then you could be one of them. You could be the owner because if I'm going to be featured in an article, I'd like it to actually be me or my company. You know what I mean? So you would reply as your main account and then use the four fake accounts to be like, hey, this guy's a good source or whatever. Potentially, or yeah, something of that nature. Try it out. Or maybe just even just two. So like I apply as myself and then I also send another message like, oh my God, you should check out this company. They're my favorite. All right then, so that's it for this episode. Uh, if you haven't checked out the book, uh, trust me, I'm lying. We both think that you should just read the first half. Second half gets a little emo, I think. Um, you know, cause he's talking about how I hacked the system. I feel bad. The system sucks, and like he's kind of self pity. So don't read the second half. It's kind of what what we said. I actually didn't even read the second half because you said not to. So exactly. So don't read it. So listen to us, and uh, we'll catch you guys next. Catch time. you guys next time.